0: Psalm 52 is on page 474 of your Pew Bible. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like the green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. Lord, we thank you that you are a light in our salvation, that you're a shelter from the storm of those enemies of our soul, both within and without. God, we thank you that you provide for us, you equip us. God, thank you that you haven't left us to ourselves and our sin that we can rely on and trust in you, the mighty God. Lord, thank you that you've given us a new song in our mouth, Lord, a song of praise to you, that we might praise and worship you all the days of our life, and that you may be glorified in and through your people. In Christ's name, amen.
1: Well, each week uh, I have enjoyed the study of the Psalms. We've been through four, not four Psalms, but Psalm 4. 16, 27 uh, This week is 52 This one's my favorite thus far uh, But I said that last week So that means you should come again next week <clears throat> I will preach uh, 70 next week And then 99 uh, And then uh, we have the opportunity uh, Through some, some uh, family friends To be able to, to take a week uh, down on the coast, so my family will not be here the week of between the 111 and 112. Um, we will be in attendance, but I won't be preaching. Eddie Kramer will take Psalm 111 and 112 for us, so you can be looking forward to that time as well. Psalm 52 is before us. Uh, I trust and pray God will help us to see the glory of this psalm. <clears throat> I, it, it, it's, there, there's a depth here. Uh, there's a reality here. <clears throat> that, that I think is the reason why this is my favorite thus far um, because, because this one is the first one we've studied this summer That has um, a, a, a specific stated Old Testament setting Where we can go back and, and see all of what was going around And on in David's life when he wrote this psalm And, and I find that very helpful And I trust it will be for you as well uh, just by way of simple introduction here, you see in verse fifty uh, psalm fifty two uh, you probably have a little bit of the the heading there the steadfast love of God endures, and then you have a little statement uh, in in the original Hebrew that would have probably been a part of verse 1. You'll see to the choir master a maskil of David. When Doag the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. And we'll look at that particular portion of Old Testament scripture here in a moment. But let's quickly just brush ourselves up on what a maskil is. Uh, it's, there are 13 psalms uh, in, in the book of Psalms. That, have, uh, that are notated as a mass skill. Uh, there's number 32, 45, 44, 45, 52, 53, 54, 55, 74, 78, 68, 69, and 142. Uh, but, but a masculine skill is, is simply this. It's an instruction. Easton's Bible Dictionary puts it this way. Instructing. A mascal, denotes a song enforcing some level or lesson of wisdom or piety. So David is writing a song to, to teach people something. And we'll note here in a minute the setting by which he is teaching them. But you should just note by way of casual glance, if you will, across Psalm 52, uh, the immensity of, of word pictures and ideas and displayed in contrast across this passage if you just set your eyes on the text let me note for you a couple of them you'll notice there are competing loves for instance you have the steadfast love of God and then you also have you love evil more than good verse 3 you have uh, the contrast of plants notice verse 5 there he will uproot you. That is evil man. He will uproot you from the land of the living. What is the righteous person get? Verse 8, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. There's the a contrast of, of plans. There's the contrast very clearly of evil versus righteous. Of boasting versus fear. Of temporary versus forever. We could just keep going. But Psalm 52 is, is filled with contrasting images to help us understand the truth that David wants us or is instructing us to understand. You'll note the truth that guides David in verse 1 is reiterated again in verse 8. You see verse 1, the steadfast love of God endures all the day. Verse 8, I trust in the steadfast love of God. That is, if you will, the brackets, the bookends of this psalm. It's the truth that is guiding David forward. The KJV puts it as the goodness of God. And the mercy of God. The NASB puts it as the loving kindness of God. And it's the application of that truth. Of the enduring, never failing. Love of God. Goodness of God. Mercy of God. However you'd like to articulate that particular attribute of God. The application of that truth you'll find in verses 5 and 6. And you have the application for the wicked. And you have the application for the righteous. And then the response to such application we'll see in verses 8 and 9. It's pretty simple to see how this passage uh, is structured. Verse 1, we ask a question, why? Notice verse 5, there's a shift, but God. And in verse 8, but I, or but, but I am. And that's how we'll take it this morning. Uh, th- th- these are helpful things maybe to you to study them, but, but what is in it for us, if you will? What's the setting of this passage? How is this passage going to help us today? I trust a maskell may be helpful for you to understand what that means. But you're going to be thinking on Tuesday, maskell doesn't help me with this particular situation. So what is Psalm 52? How would God plant it upon our hearts this morning and how might it help us in this day? Well, I think we must see the setting. So if you will, please turn with me in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 21. First Samuel chapter 21. We'll be in verse Samuel for nine, uh, 21, for nine verses, and then we'll move over to 22 as well. Let me just paint the picture for you. Uh, David has defeated Goliath. David is in the house of Saul. Uh, David is playing the harp, David is being used by God in the house of Saul David has has conquered enemies, there are songs sung about David There there are friendships of David that that are incredibly deep This brotherhood he has with with Saul's son, Jonathan And the setting of of 21 is this uh, setting of David and Jonathan having to break apart David's life is in danger, and so he is fleeing from Saul. He's fleeing all by himself. Uh, He's running into the wilderness. He's fleeing for his life. Verse 1 of 1 Samuel 21. Follow along as I read. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? David said to him, elect the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I had made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed before the Lord from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord. His name was Doag the Edomite the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Himalek, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. Well, time does not permit for us to go into whether or not David was lying or deceiving or how to think about what is happening here, but certainly we can recognize that the priest of God Ahimelech has not gotten the full picture. He has not gotten clarity as to what is actually going on in David's life. David is provided by him for. David is provided for by him. He is given uh, sustenance. He is given provision of protection in the form of Goliath's sword. And let's see what happens. Chapter 22, it should be a page or two to your right. You'll look with me, if you will, at verse six. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him. Now I want you to notice as I'm reading verse seven here, the way that Saul takes language and twists it to manipulate and coerce here now people of benjamin will the son of jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me no one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of jesse None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then answered Doag the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, my son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse? And that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king. And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. And the king said, you shall surely die, Himelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doag, You turn and strike the priests. And Doag the Edomite turned and struck down the priest, and he killed on that day 85 persons who were wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priest, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the sons of Ahateb, named Abathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abathar, I knew on that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. This is a bloody chapter. It's hard to, to paint the picture accurately without it being more than we should probably even consider. The bloodthirstiness of this man Doag, the, the evilness of Saul, uh, his, his willingness to kill the priesthood. And we see even in this chapter a transfer of the priesthood from underneath Saul over to the rightful king David. But, but just just see the passage. Doag is not just going to kill the priests, which is mind-blowing. He then goes and wipes out the entire city. His sword seems to just be, have an unquenchable thirst for blood. And and then you have one that escapes, and you, you can imagine what is happening when David is off in the wilderness and one young man comes to him, probably blood splattered, worn out, fatigued, his very life hanging before his eyes, all of his family gone, his father's house destroyed, his entire city ransacked. And he goes to David. And David writes Psalm 52 with this as the setting. This is, this is the song, if you will, Psalm 52, of the lonely exile when surrounded by ruthless enemies. Now there, David's setting is, ours is not much different. Even in this day, to David's. You, without a doubt, have probably experienced some portion of this week in loneliness. You, without a doubt, have probably had situations this week where you were faced with seemingly no way forward or seemingly no possible hope forward with whatever this possibility or the situation is. Psalm 52 is for you. This is the setting. This loneliness, this questioning. And what does David do? Psalm 52 describes for us Doag, and 1 Samuel does as well, but Doag is simply a prototype of enemies, those who have no moral compass, but only one that can be coerced, bought, manipulated, bribed. Doag is the example of the type of enemies we the godly will, not if, we will face. And so with enemies about us, even in our world today, what What do we do? Well, we do what David does, and let us be instructed by the psalm he wrote. Verse 1 through 4, why? Notice what he says. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, lying more than speaking what is right. You love all the words that devour, O deceitful tongue. We need to pause before we go much further and recognize that to even have the thought this morning, to even consider having enemies in today's world of peace and love seems dirty or at least unsettling. It, that Really? I don't want enemies. I don't really have enemies. Yeah, you do. We all have enemies. We need to recognize that we have enemies. It doesn't matter at this point what color of skin you are. If you're a Christian that pronounces the Bible and the truth of God's word as it pertains to sexuality and and the foundation of the gospel to join people together, people want to kill you. There are people that would love nothing better to see your blood flow. You don't believe me? Go read the news. We are faced with enemies about us who are ruthless. And we must recognize that we have enemies. What is an enemy? And I would suggest that something is as simple as someone who hates you. Well, how do we define hate? And I would say it would be as simple as that action that is not of love. Well, then we have the question. We keep going here, right? What then is love? For starters, we recognize and we know, according to Scripture, that God is love. So what if God's love toward us would indicate what love actually is? And I can think of really no better verse this morning than Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. God's love is displayed through Christ, tells us what loved is. God's love displayed through Christ tells us what love is. It is seeking the welfare of others that points them to God and helps them glorify him. That's what love is. It's not a hug, though that's an expression of a type of love. But that which drives right hugs, if you will, is seeking the welfare of others that points them to God and helps them glorify him. There are enemies, and we have them. And we need to recognize we have them. Now, we're called to love them. How are we called to love them? By seeking the welfare of them that points them to God and helps them to glorify Him. We'll see how David does that here, even in a minute. But note how these enemies, these evil people, are described, how Doag is described, how this is a description of the enemies of of God and of Christianity today. It's based upon the tongue. Your tongue plots destruction. You boast, you love evil more than God, you love lying, your words devour. Your brain should go to James chapter 3, 5 through 8. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And James puts that in to James chapter 3 by way of saying, if you've been saved, Christ tames your tongue and the evidence or one of them of your salvation is a changed tongue but he puts this James chapter 3, 5 through 8 section in first to say this is what you're up against this is the nature of the tongue and thus we have this boasting so who's your enemy I'm going to say it black lives matter is our enemy The Marxists in chop are our enemies. They hate God. The liberal professor at any university mocking God, that's our enemy. They hate you. You don't have to hate, you're not supposed to hate them. They hate you though. Do you know that? They hate you. They want you destroyed. The truth of God as love, flows from God being good. One of the things David is going to do here is in the setting of this evil and enemies, he makes this statement at the end of verse 1, simply putting it this way, God's love is steadfast and enduring beyond even the most unspeakable of evils. And so he simply frames the evil of all of his world, and we would frame the evil of our world in the in the setting, in the frame of the steadfast love of God that lasts far longer eternally despite the picture in the middle fading away. I went to an estate sale on Friday. I like estate sales. It's a good picture of the mortality of human beings as well as the junk of our lives and here at this estate, so what do you see? Beautiful picture frames. And you can't recognize the picture. Because just faded out. Time has drawn it out. And, and, and the wood lasts longer than the image. And this is what, Paul, this is what David is doing here. He's simply saying, listen, it, there's a ton of evil. And it's a clear, vivid picture. But what is going to last much longer than this is the steadfast love of God that endures beyond even the most unspeakable evils. Let me just quickly point you by way of Old Testament Scripture to Exodus chapter 34. The steadfast love of God endures all the day. You should spend some time as you're at your leisure if you can. In Exodus chapter 34, 5 through 9, portion of that passage was our um, assurance of pardoning grace this morning. It is the, I'll read it for you, it is the uh, character of God, That God desires his people to know about him. How do I know this? How do we know this? Because it is God who's speaking here. Moses has been up on on Mount Sinai. God descends in the cloud. He stands with Moses and God proclaims something to Moses. And this is what he says, verse 6 of Exodus 34. This is what, if you will, all of Israel would have held to about God this is what David's holding to this is what is repeated throughout the prophets where in the midst of all that's going on they would hold to this attribute of God or these attributes of God the Lord passed before him verse 6 Exodus 34 and proclaimed the Lord the Lord a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped, and he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. That's what we need to know continually about God in the midst of this evil world is the steadfast love of God. That's what Israel held to. That's what we hold to. That's what David writes about here. But look at the second section, verse five through seven. If the question is, why do you boast evil, O evil man, five through seven, but God. And let me just ask you the simple question you might think about it look for it in your bible is there a better two-letter phrase in all of the bible but god i think not but god will break you down forever he will snatch and tear you from your tent he will uproot you from the land of the living the righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him saying, see the man who would not make God his refuge but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. How can David write about this? In the midst of entire, seemingly an entire uh, situation or circumstance of upheaval, the priesthood is gone except one man. He's being chased. His very life is at stake. How can he write this? Because he knows the character of God. He knows about Noah's ark and God's hatred for wickedness and his willingness to destroy it and save people. He knows about Pharaoh and the way Pharaoh pressed God's people and God rescuing them and wiping out evil. There is evidence of God's past faithfulness and David roots this song of instruction in the past faithfulness of God. And he sta- simply states, by way of question in verse one, and by way of statement in verse five, "Sinner, be warned! O men and women of evil, be warned!" And he would say the same to, same thing to us this morning. Note: if you're going to go the way of evil and not the way of righteousness, the Bible simply says, "Be warned." That which you do with your tongue to destroy is nothing to compared to what God will do in judgment. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, five through 5-10 This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God which, for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marbled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. If you do not know Christ, that is you. I made a, a brother made a remark to me this week. We were talking about that final day when Christ returns. And we both remarked about the sound that will emit from heaven, that will emit from earth to up to heaven on that day. And and it'll be quite the sound. It will be shrieks of pure ecstasy and shrieks of pure horror. One side or the other is balanced on the work of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. They shall see the work of God, they shall fear God, and they shall laugh. Notice it's not, <laughs> see, I told you so. That's not what's happening here. This is a laugh of delight in the work of God. Calvin puts it this way, they would laugh at their destruction, yet not in the way of insulting over them, but rejoicing more and more in the confidence of the help of God and denying themselves more cheerfully to the vain pleasures of this world. We're we're laughing in delight at the work of God and accomplishing his purpose and doing what he said he would do and punishing the evil and rewarding the good. Brothers and sisters, we are those who shall see and fear. We walk by faith, but we do not walk blindly. Our faith is rooted in the eternal evidence of God's work in the past and his promises he will never fail on in the future. So when we shall see and fear, we see back and we remark on his promises that he's given and we see that he has not failed in those and then we look forward and we fear him appropriately. Note, one cannot... See what it says. See the man who would not make God his refuge. Verse 7. One cannot make God his richest treasure and refuge until they have been emptied of all competing fortresses and treasures. And so we sing, sometimes on Sunday morning, how rich a treasure we possess in Jesus Christ our Lord. The kingdom of God is like an unparalleled unparalleled treasure in a field. And, and, And one goes and gives all in order to obtain it. But until they're willing to give all, and so even the testimony of every Christian I have heard starts with this. My sin. Oh, my sin. I saw my sin. I was emptied of my self-worth and I saw my sin. And then I could see Christ for me. The wicked are not like that. They boast in their own doing. Christian boasts in the work of God. But God And then finally, eight and nine, but I, but I am. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. Uh, You need to understand the picture, and I'll explain it, of this green olive tree. What he is stating that he is in the house of God is then the setting, if you will, or the confidence he has to be able to say, "Because I am this, I am like this; therefore, I do this; therefore, I trust; therefore, I thank; therefore, I wait," because of who I am. So, I want to take us to three different passages in, in Scripture this morning, uh, by way of of shifting, if you will, our thought about Psalm fifty-two in its context of historical significance, and as we shift this to think about Christ, I want to take us to three three passages, and I want us to think about how in Christ Psalm 52 is true for us today. And here's the first one. I would like you to go there with me, Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, verse 25. Mark chapter five verse twenty five. How? Here's, here's here's what we're asking. How is Psalm fifty two in Christ true for us today? So, because of what Christ has done for us, because of who Christ is, how can we say? Well, how, what do we need to see in Christ that helps us to say in verse eight and nine of Psalm fifty two? I am like this, therefore I trust, therefore I wait, therefore, etc. Mark chapter 5, verse 25 through 34. This is a story. The first thing I want us to understand is this steadfast love of God is seen by way of a story in Mark chapter 5. It's displayed, uh, the, the love of God is displayed through Christ to someone who is lonely and in exile. Remember David, lonely, exile right now. This is what Christ, this is how Christ um, displays for us on this earth, that love of God that is steadfast and true, that holds David through in his time of exile and loneliness. Loneliness. Mark chapter 5, I think this is one of my favorite stories in all of the New Testament. Verse 25 His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched your garments? He looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Okay, you need to understand about this woman. She is ritually and culturally unclean. She cannot go into the temple. She cannot go before the presence of God with the people of God. She is outside the city. She's been there for 12 years. No one will touch her or they're unclean. She works up the courage based upon who Jesus Christ is as the son of God to go in faith and touch him. And rather than Jesus Christ being made unclean, she becomes clean. That's the power of God. That's the power of the Son of God. But do you see how David's loneliness, David's exile, David's question about all the evil of the world, all the questions of why, why is this happening? All of those. Steadfast love of God, pictured in Jesus Christ. This is what he does with us. He takes us. (laughs) You've got to get this. He takes us, he draws us to himself, and Christ recreates us. Why does he recreate us? Because you were born in Adam's sin. And therefore, because of Adam's sin, you can be ritually unclean. You can be physically unclean. You can murder people because you are born in that. And you can't, you can't get away from that. The world would love you to think, oh, if I can get you in another culture, and if I can get you in another education program, somehow you'll be good like you really are. It's not your fault. Well, you're right. In some sense, it's Adam's fault, but we're born in that. We need someone to do what Adam could not do, which is be perfect and save us. And this is what Christ does. And he draws us to himself and his power makes us clean. This is the steadfast love of God worked out in physical picture in Mark chapter five that is worked out spiritually every day on this planet. Christ loving people who are failures. David, I mean, I don't know how you want to read 1 Samuel, but David's not really doing that well. He's lying to a priest. Christ draws us to himself. He engrafts us into himself. This is the picture of the olive tree here. This is what you need to understand about the image of of this plant the olive tree is number 1 you can graft into it at any time of its of its lifespan wait for it it's transplantable as well and it's not transplantable only in a certain time period you can plant an olive tree at any point in its life so i asked my children this morning how old can olive trees grow I guess I didn't ask it in the right way Because they didn't come out with 100 The first one out of the gate was 500 years old Shooting for the moon, kids We had as much as 3,000 Offered by someone else Well, I went back to my study That's wrong it's, There have been trees found to be four and 5,000 years old I, I, I've stood where they believed to be The Garden of Gethsemane And we're dealing with trees That are 800 to 1,000 years old They're gnarled, they're weather-beaten, they're twisted, they're scarred, they're beautiful, but they're still bearing fruit four to 5,000 years later. This is the steadfast love of God. He draws us to himself, he protects us, he's the gardener, he watches over us, he grabs us in, he cuts branches off, he does all that he needs to because he loves us and he allows us to bear fruit forever for his glory. So David says, I am like. What does that mean? I am here forever. God's love keeps me. He will hold me fast. In spite of all this wickedness around me, he will win the day. He will protect me. He will nourish me. He will tend me. So then we have to go to Paul, because Paul is going to take the love of God and he's going to draw it again even further out. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Our first passage was Mark 5. Second one, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. I won't spend much time on these remaining two. Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 19. States this. This is Paul. So Paul, if you just by way of reminder, in Ephesians, he's just spent three chapters. Drawing out the glory of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. He's drawing out the glory of the gospel. And he ends that section of the book with a prayer. And this is his prayer. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit and in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Notice. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What is Paul, by way of the Holy Spirit, desperately want the saints to get? It's the same thing that David wrote about. An understanding of the glory and the greatness of God's love toward us in Jesus Christ. That's what carries the day. Is understanding that God loves you. And then finally, 1 John chapter 4, verse 15 through 18. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love but perfect love cast out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So because of the work of God we now have ability to not fear all that is around us, to not fear the punishment of God, but to recognize that because of the love of God he punished Christ in our place. Let me ask you this morning, if you do not know Jesus Christ, do you know that God loves sinners? Not in the I love fireworks and so I enjoy fireworks one time a year type of love. No, he loves sinners to the point that he was willing to send his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for such people as us. And can I remind you this morning that if we worked out more time to think about 1 John, if you say that you know God and love him and yet you you live in an evil way and you will not repent of your sin, you cannot say you're a Christian. Does your life match up with the test of Scripture as to whether or not you're a Christian? You can't say you're a Christian and then use your tongue in the same way that Psalm 52's evil man uses his tongue. It doesn't work. I don't mean that you don't have a a foul word that comes out of your mouth. No, we're sinners. We're going to do that. I mean, you can't say that you're a Christian and this be the type of language that always comes out of your mouth. You can't say that you're a Christian and hate the things of God's word. May I offer to you Jesus Christ as the one who laid down his life for sinners like me and like you and is the only one that can save us and draw us to himself. God's love is steadfast and enduring beyond even the most unspeakable evils. So Christian, we should hate sin. We should hate any and all kinds of sin. And Christian, we should thank God God has done the work of planting us in his steadfast eternal love as displayed in Christ and therefore we thank him forever because he has done it. And Christian, we should wait for him patiently. He is good. He will display that goodness in the face of all his and our enemies and we will one day rejoice. And so let us trust him. And when we seemingly are surrounded by unspeakable evils and wonder what if and why, we must go back to the gospel and plant ourselves under the flag of the love of God and his willingness to protect us as his people. Let's pray. Father, we come before you humbly And we plead with you to help us understand your love. Father, I plead with you as the pastor of this church. I in no way believe that this message has done the work that desperately needs to be done in our hearts, which is to help us understand the length, breadth, height, and depth. But I plead with you that it might have moved the needle slightly forward. that the care that you have for us your people would be seen more clearly that the when we, when we look op- upon the empty cross and the empty tomb and, and we see that your promises of a savior that will rise came to be that as we look upon our hearts and see delightfully in our past you are you're changing us as you promised you would that the steadfast love of you our god would would be that which is more clear to us father i, I Consider that even the song we'll sing here a few, in a few moments. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused him pain? Father, may we, we recognize that in spite of the evil of our day, of which there is, in spite of the hatred that America is showing for you, We have confidence in the unchanging God that you are. Strengthen us for this week. Father, I don't know the particular situations that each person is involved in that is here this morning. Undoubtedly, there are those who are faced with trials of every kind. Undoubtedly, there are those who are lonely. Undoubtedly, those who are questioning they're wondering, why does the evil seem to be winning the day? Why is this in my life seem to be as difficult it is as it is? And I simply request that Psalm 52 would be helpful for them to lift their eyes to look to you in faith. We thank you for this morning and the opportunity that we have to sing yet again in response, to in faith receive your blessing from your word upon us as we depart, to rejoice with one another to cry with one another, to laugh with one another, to encourage one another in fellowship. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.